Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to be looking very briefly tonight at this chapter. This chapter almost forms a unit with chapter 5. And so um, this evening we're going to be seeing a bit of an overview of the transition from uh, the seven letters to the churches of Revelation, of Asia, to really the book of Revelation proper and its purpose, uh, its purpose not only for those seven churches, but for us as well. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, were four, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their, their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed, and were created. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would open up this, your Word, to us. That you would cause us to see what you would place before us but that we would especially see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory, that we might be renewed 
that we might be changed, that we might serve You, O Lord, with gladness and faithfulness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is a transition here at the beginning of chapter 4. This language, even at the beginning of chapter 4, is language we will see again in Revelation with differing sections where John tells us that he looked and after this things were to take place. If you recall what we have been looking at in the first uh, three chapters, especially chapters 2 and 3, we've been looking at the struggles of the church. The struggles of the church as it manifests, as they manifest themselves in various circumstances. Churches that are more faithful or less faithful. But at all points, the temptation to disobey, the temptation to fall away, the temptation not to trust the Lord Jesus, and then persecution that comes from within and without. And this is, as we have seen, not that dissimilar to the struggles that we have in the Christian life. You see, you don't need to live in a town named Smyrna or Pergamum or Philadelphia in order to face the challenges that are described here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And so as we think about that, we may ask ourselves, how can we have hope in the midst of all of this persecution, difficulty, and challenge? Do you ever get to a point where you wonder where your hope is going to come from? And I don't mean the kind of hope that you wistfully think that maybe things will get better. True biblical hope is not clicking your heels three times and expecting to end up home. True biblical hope is resting on the promise of God and on who God is. That's what carries us through our challenges. And that's what we're going to see here briefly this evening because John is being taken from the events that are occurring here and now in the churches. He is going to be taken into heaven to see the council room of the King of Kings, to see what is going on here and now in heaven, to see who God is, what His plans are, and what things will come. And so what I would like us to look at very briefly then are three things. They all revolve around the Lord Himself. First, I'd like us to look at the One who is on the throne. Sometimes we forget not only that God is on the throne, but who God is, what He looks like, what He does. Then secondly, we will see creation as it is before the One on the throne. The created world before the one who has created it. What is the purpose of creation? We see that here in this chapter. And then finally, we will see the praise that is given to the one who is on the throne. So the one on the throne, the creation that is before him, and the praise that is given to him. Let's begin then by looking at who the Lord is. First, we see that John is brought into his presence. Look here with me at verses 1 and 2. John looks up and behold, there is a door standing open in heaven. Now, we need not think of this door as some kind of secret passageway to find out um, all of the, the history that will occur 
in centuries to come. Many people want to look at this this way. They view this door in heaven kind of like, do you remember the old uh, mystery shows like Charlie Chan or the or Miss Marple, or there's always a big English mansion. And in nearly every room, there's a bookcase or a wall or something where you push, and it's a door to a secret passageway where you can get into secret places hidden from others and discover what's going on. That's not the kind of door here. You see, the door here is an open invitation to John to come into the presence of God, to see what God is doing and who God is, to declare the Lord himself. And he's doing it not so that John might have secret knowledge, but so that rather John might tell us that we might know, that we might have comfort. You see, the Bible is not about secret knowledge. It's about revealing the will of God. And so John had already seen the things that are. You may recall that was told to him in chapter 1, verse 19. He had seen the things that are, and now he is to see what is to come. And what is to come is what is to come for these seven churches of Revelation. It's what is to come for the church here in Katy. This is not prehistory being rolled out. We're not going to go through, as I mentioned way back in the introduction, I'm not, we're not going to go through and try and determine where the Roman Emperor is, where Germany is, and where the B-52 bombers are where the United States is, all in the book of Revelation. We're going to look and see who the Lord is. And so John is ushered into a council chamber. I want you to picture it like a great hall for a king. Some of you may have seen that in a film or read about it in a book and have a picture in your mind's eye. There is this massive throne where the king of kings sits, and it is surrounded by lesser thrones. Now, we know that God does not need advice. Right? God doesn't need counselors. The Bible tells us that. But this is described in this kind of way to condescend us so that we get an idea that God is king, that he is ruling, and that he has courtiers, that he has those who are dependent upon him and who serve him and praise him. And so John walks in and he sees this. And he is brought in here to hear the counsel of the Lord. This is not dissimilar at all to the way God deals with the prophets. In Genesis chapter 18, God asks himself the question about Abraham. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? That is, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the answer is no, Abraham is my friend. I will reveal it to him. Amos in chapter 3, reminds us that this is the purpose of the prophets, to get the counsel of the Lord that is secret and to declare it to the nations. For the Lord God does nothing, nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. See, that's what John is doing. He is learning the will of God that we might know. And this is not any different than even what our Lord Jesus Christ did. In John 15, He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is revealing this to John. And John comes up into a different world. He goes from the closed door of Laodicea to the open door of heaven. 
And this change in perspective gives him a new view of what God is doing. He's no longer looking at the churches solely and all of their problems and struggles and faithlessness. He now has a change in perspective. He's in heaven. He sees the councils of heaven. He sees what God is doing in these churches from a heavenly standpoint. And he has a change in perspective of time because he will now begin to see and know what God is doing and he can take comfort in it. Have you ever watched a very difficult movie? Maybe one that shook you, frightened you, something that you didn't really enjoy the prospect and really jarred you. Then did you ever watch it a second time? A bit easier to watch, isn't it? How about a third time? Sooner or later, you're repeating the dialogue. You're not jarred by the events. You know what's coming. And you see, this is what God does in a very visual way. And I use film specifically because Apocalypse is like biblical film. It's like a biblical movie. It's, it's technicolor. It's images that are before us to describe things that are very difficult to describe. And that's what John is party to here. You see, the images that are put before him are of the Lord God himself and his throne. And you'll notice that there is nothing very specific here. There is no temptation and no ability to take the description in chapter 4 and to violate the second commandment with it. What does God look like in this chapter? Does he have a gray beard? Is he tall? Is he broad of shoulders? Does he have a beard? None of that is here. You see, all of that is our fancy and our imagination. The Bible doesn't speak in these terms because God cannot be described in so simple terms. He can't be contained in the physical. No, we read that he is one who had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now, these are gems, brilliant gems. Brilliant red and green gems. You could picture the light going through them. And around his throne was a rainbow. Now there's an image. Reminds us of Noah and the mercy of God. Around his throne was a rainbow. And the rainbow had the appearance of an emerald. You see, these important images are cast before us. And this is the way the Bible speaks. You see, when we take the time to study the Scriptures, we see that God is described in ways that are, that are kind of like grasping at light or tasting color, right? It's sort of foreign to our senses. But it's the way the Bible describes the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel describes the Lord and His throne this way. And above the expanse over their heads was a likeness of a throne in the appearance like sapphire. Again, here the green. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what, I, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal and the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of a bow, that is a rainbow, 
that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now you understand sometimes why Ezekiel is so hard to read and understand. There's appearances, there's likenesses, there's descriptions. But one thing that we see from this is the majesty and the power of God, the sovereignty of God sitting on a throne with brilliance like gems, gleaming like metal, power like fire. This chapter here is concerned with God being sovereign and in control. You may have noticed as we read down through this chapter that the word throne appears several times. You might be interested to know that the word throne appears in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 22, 38 times. I can tell you that from a computer search. You might also be interested to know that that word occurs 17 times in this chapter. Do you think the Lord is trying to get across a message to us of the power and the sovereignty of God as He is the one who rules from His throne? Now, Why would he do this? Because he's just been speaking about all of the struggles in the church and he wants us to know that John has come up knowing all of the pain, all of the agony, all of the struggle that is on this earth and he wants us to know that in the midst of this, God is on his throne. That the Lord Jesus Christ is not merely sending letters of advice. He's not dabbling. He is reigning today. Do you know that? When you... Look at a news article and you wonder whether inflation will go up or the economy will go south or Egypt will go into chaos or the Middle East will go into chaos or wars will break out or hurricanes will come. Do you realize all of that in the context of Jesus Christ reigning today? Do you realize that when you are getting ready to take a big test, do schoolwork, finish a project, go to the doctor. All of these things that challenge us, Jesus reigns over all. The God of judgment and of mercy is in control. And creation knows this. As we see the creation that is before the one on the throne, we see it in the elders and we see it in the living creatures, the four living creatures. Now, these elders are 24. There has been great speculation about what they mean. And I think some of the best uh, explanations, which are not uh, exclusive, are that the elders represent 24, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament, the entirety of the church gathered before the throne of God. But it does also seem that these are not saints themselves. You know, this is not Jacob. This is not um, Levi. This is not Abraham. This is not uh, Simon or Andrew. But rather that these are perhaps angels. Angels who worship the Lord and who represent the church. Who pray on its behalf who look to see what the Lord will do and give Him glory for all He does in the church. They are seated around Him in a great council, as it were, much like we saw when we looked at the first chapter of Job. And so, they are around the Lord. But it's not just animate 
creation that is around him. There is inanimate creation that praises the Lord and that is found. There is lightning and thunder that comes from his throne. This lightning and thunder is like the lightning and thunder on Mount Sinai. The language is very similar to Exodus 19. This is not just a throne for sitting. It is a throne of power and of judgment. And we will see lightning and thunder come forth throughout this book of Revelation as God's judgment is rained on those who deny Him and His rule. And before Him, there is a sea of glass. Now this is a very vivid image, isn't it? But one of the things we need to understand, and we will see throughout the book of Revelation, is that generally speaking, the sea is bad news. Now primarily, the Israelites were not fishermen or sailors on the high seas. They would go out into lakes and maybe a little bit off the shore, but they were not a seafaring nation. And you may remember in the book of Daniel that it is out of the sea that comes the great beast. The sea is a place of chaos and tumult, of uncertainty. Any of you that have seen uh, these various shows that show the the deadliest catch or the perfect storm know how dangerous the sea can be. But this is a sea of glass. And you see, God has brought about peace before His throne. The sea is completely under His control. It is so under His control, it is like a sheet of glass. Do you remember any other occasion where the sea was taken from a raging tempest to stillness? It's when our Lord Jesus Christ merely said the words, be still. And do you remember the reaction of those around him? Even the waves and the sea obey him. Now John comes in here and he sees that the one who calmed that sea calms every sea and makes it like glass. This is testimony to the power of God. And then finally we see here the living creatures, the ones who come and who praise the Lord They are here to describe for us all of the living creatures. They are perhaps emblematic of the cherubim. Or they might be emblematic of all of creation. You see, again, there is this apocalyptic kind of uh, large-scale drawing of who they are. There is a lion, the noblest of the creatures. The ox, the strongest of the creatures. Man, the wisest of the creatures. The eagle, the swiftest of the creatures. The idea here is not to drill down and define each specific thing. What, are the, what symbolizes the feathers on the eagle? But rather to see that all encompasses, all of the earth is encompassed by the glory of God. Well, we have the one on the throne and we have the, those who are before the throne. And when you have that, you must have praise that breaks out. For the Lord Himself, for the one on the throne. And we see here very briefly four things of praise that we will see again and again. The first is we see who God is. We see it here in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see, the hymn writer wasn't very original when he wrote hymn 100. He took it here because this is who God is. He is three times holy. 
He is the triune God. He is holy in a perfect sense and way. God is not only holy, He is almighty. This is a translation of what we see often in our Old Testament Bibles where it describes the Lord God of hosts, Lord God of armies. It is the Lord Almighty. When that Hebrew was translated into the Greek, they didn't say the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. They said the Lord God Almighty. And it means that in Greek. It's not only that we don't have words for um, omniscient, but we don't have words for omnipotent either in the Hebrew Bible. But here, this is described for us. And this phrase is used more than 200 times in the Old Testament to describe God. And here it is described, it is used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. God is holy, God is almighty, but God also is. And that's important for us to remember. We do not make God. He is the God who was and who is and who is to come. And this, of course, describes the Lord Jesus. God is Jehovah, Yahweh, self-existent. He is the I Am. And next week we will see in chapter 5 that the I Am is Jesus. Jesus is not only God. He is the I Am. The praise is given for who God is, but it is also a thanksgiving. Do you notice this? The living creatures in verse 9, they give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever. They give thanks to God for who He is because He lives forever and He is worthy of glory and honor. They give thanks for the wonder of His works that He has created all things and that He sustains all things. They give praise to God for who He is what He has done. And then finally, they give praise to Him because the Lord is our Lord. Do you notice that in verse 11? It doesn't just say, Worthy are you, Lord and God. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. You are our Lord, our God, and you are exalted. And you are near. You see, when we speak of the glory of God, that speaks of the nearness of God because we can see His glory. God is near to us. God is around us. God is near to us. And God is to be worshipped. This is why the 24 elders, as soon as the heavenly chorus breaks forth in praise, they cast their crowns on the sea. They give up all that might have any merit and they worship God. This is the God King of the universe. This is the Lord God of revelation. He is not to be trifled with. He is not to be played with. He is good. He is powerful and mighty. He is to be worshipped above all else. This, Christian, is the God that you serve. Let's pray.